Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for a new day, a new opportunity to come together as family, as church community, to dive into your word and to allow you to speak to us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have ears that are open and ready to listen, hearts that are ready to receive, and that we would be attentive to how you are speaking to each one of us, Lord. You knew every single one of us would be here tonight, and you have a word, a message for every single one of us individually. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be undistracted, unworried, unanxious. You would remove all of those things from us as we lay this time and all of our worries and intentions at your feet so that we can be open and ready to receive whatever you have in store. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it, and bless us in the hearing of your word. Guide us tonight and send your Holy Spirit upon us. Inspire in us whatever you want us to glean from this passage as we prepare for this upcoming Sunday and the liturgy and the readings that we will hear. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 10, starting verse 26, and we'll be reading through verse 33. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday Mass, the 12th Sunday in the season of ordinary time. And ordinary time is anything but ordinary, but we are uh, journeying through the rest of the teachings and mission work of Jesus' ministry apart from the other liturgical seasons. And so uh, we're kind of picking up in Matthew where we left off last time we were in ordinary time, and we'll be continuing in the gospel of Matthew Uh, throughout these chapters for the next several weeks. And so Matthew is the gospel that we're predominantly in this year. So a few reminders about the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience about how Jesus is the Jewish fulfillment to the Messiah. So there's a lot of Jewish and Old Testament references and imagery. Uh, In this, you're going to have a lot of kind of the more legalistic, judgment-oriented language because Matthew is very big on the kingdom and the law that was established in Moses. And so a lot of that type of language shows up in this week's passage. And so we're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. So Jesus is speaking here uh, near the Sea of Galilee. I believe he's in Capernaum or somewhere nearby, preaching to the crowds. And uh, he is teaching them about how to have courage under persecution. So keep in mind, when Matthew is writing this, it's about 20 years, 20 to 25 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the church has been established as being heavily persecuted by Rome, by uh, their their, uh, former Jewish brothers and sisters. And this is meant to serve not only as a teaching that Jesus gave during his life, but also encouragement to those who are reading uh, many years later. So first time through Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26, Jesus says, Therefore do not be afraid of them, Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. 
What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Even all the hairs of your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my heavenly Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll read this a second time, and this time through, and now that you have a sense for what Jesus is saying here, listen very closely to the words and see if there's anything in particular that just stands out to you. Maybe it sparks a thought, a memory, resonates with something going on in your life. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage itself. Maybe the word the stands out for some reason, or the word ground, or whatever it is, you know, just reminds you of something. Think about those things that stand out to you. Why are those resonating? What is the Lord trying to say to you through the particular details and words of this passage? And reflect on those and see what you glean from what unique message the Lord might be sharing with you. So second and final time through Matthew 10, starting verse 30, uh, 26. Therefore, do not be afraid of them. Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Even all the hairs of your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my heavenly Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over this passage, the things that stood out to you, and we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stands out to you, what questions you have. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes at your tables and just share what stood out to you and why, what questions you have about this passage, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group to discuss those things and answer those questions. So take the next 10 minutes or so. So a few things about this passage, at least a few things that are standing out to me, and, and I don't know if this resonated with your own discussion, but when you look at the title to this section, Courage Under Persecution, and as I'm reading this and I've been reflecting on this passage over the past week, I've, I've just been recognizing the, the desperate need I think we have in our world as Christians for courage and boldness in faith. Like it is very easy to be a lukewarm Christian, which I would argue is not a Christian at all. But, 
You know, it's because to be Christian inherently means that we are standing for something that is set apart from the world. Like we are completely separate by virtue of our baptism from the lures, the ensnares of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like we are separating ourselves intentionally. And so these words, boldness and courage and faith, these things that, that we're called to, it's very easy to get comfortable or lukewarm in our faith. And it's very causes a lot of scandal, I think, in the church when Christians, when we don't represent the faith well by doing the best to live the moral life and the virtuous life. If we live our faith halfway, then people are going to have no clear vision of what it looks like to be faithful Christians. Like we're not inviting them into anything beautiful if we're not stepping into kind of the hard, challenging walk of the faith. I think it was Gandhi who said, if you stand for, if, if you don't stand for any, what does he say? If, unless you stand for something, then you stand for nothing. That's what he said. Unless you stand for something, then you stand for nothing. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in the political correctness of what it means to be a Christian in today's world. And that doesn't mean that I'm advocating that we're, we're um, you know, intolerant of other people or we're ag aggressive or abrasive toward other people in a hurtful way. But what I mean is like, we need to be willing to stand up for what we believe, even if we're the only person in the room that we think believes it, because it's true. And if we love people as much as we say that we do as Christians, then we have to love them enough to tell them the truth. Even if we're in an entire room, an entire arena, an entire whatever it may be, filled with people that we think believe something different. And we can do that with love, but like, recognize the time that this is being written in. Like the apostles, the early Christians, the people that this is being written to, like they were the only one in an entire arena that believed what they did. It just happened to be an arena filled with lions and they were being martyred. But at least they stood up for what they believed in. It wasn't this glamorous life. It wasn't this life where everyone is going to love you and everyone likes you. You know, they say like, if you're living your life as a Christian and you're not being persecuted yet, then you're probably doing something wrong. You know, like that's real. And, and, and again, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to intentionally ruffle feathers and be rude, but it means that like we need to stand for something or we stand for nothing. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And this is not like, a, you know, a, a modern, comfortable version of Jesus, right? Like all the depictions we have of Jesus are like more of the like, just come here and everybody love each other kind of Jesus. And like nobody speaks more about hell and judgment in the Bible than Jesus. Like he is real, authentic, and truthful about the reality of our faith, about what's at stake if we turn away from what God is offering us. He doesn't want to punish us. He says in the book of wisdom, God did not create death, nor does he rejoice in the destruction of the living. Like these things are not from God, but he'll respect our free will and he'll let us stay rooted in our sin, rooted in our comfort, in our laziness, in our sloth. And he'll let us stay there and he'll respect our free will and allow us to condemn ourselves because there's no halfway of being a Christian. There's no halfway path to get to heaven. You know, the way is narrow. The way is narrow and few are traversing it is what the Bible says. That's something that we have to be very aware of. What's brought up here is a reality of the, the theology behind the last judgment. If you don't know this, the church teaches that at the last judgment, in fact, I'll read this from the catechism. This is uh, 1039, I believe. Yeah, paragraph 1039. It says that the last judgment, in the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each person's relationship with God will be laid bare. 
The Last Judgment will reveal even to its furthest consequences the good each person has done or failed to do during their earthly life. And then it quotes a sermon from St. Augustine that starts this way. He says, all that the wicked do is recorded, and they do not know. When our God comes, he does not keep silence. Like Jesus is honest about the stakes. And we have to have an awareness of the stakes. Like he, he tells us everything. This is what is required of you. But you are living in a state where the world has been separated from God by sin, and sin is destructive, and the wages of sin is death. And if you do not allow God to redeem you and save you from that death, and you continue to choose things that lead you more down that path, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to respect your free will. I'm going to love you enough to let you make the wrong decision, as any parent eventually has to decide to do for their children. I'll keep chasing after you. I'll keep praying for you. I'll keep coming after you. But ultimately, the decision is in your hands. And in the end, it says... Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my heavenly Father. That's a hard and harsh truth and reality sometimes that we have to deal with. But we have to be aware of this as Christians that there's no halfway of doing this. I was listening to a podcast today. I think it was a Word on Fire podcast from Bishop Barron today or yesterday. Talking about there's a resurgence in stoicism among young men. And Stoicism is a philosophical belief system that it has some alignment with Christianity, but it kind of dispels all of like the feeling and like it, it kind of disavows a lot of the stuff that's inherent to our created bodies and our created goodness. So it's not something that really aligns completely with, with Christianity or with Catholicism at least. But the reason why it's having this resurgence, um, according to, to people who are experts in this and people who've spoken about this, like Jordan Peterson, Bishop Barron, and, and likewise, is that young men, uh, particularly in our modern world, are not being challenged. We want to do things that are hard. Like we, there's something in us that recognizes there's something greater than this life. And when we offer this very comfortable, like, hey, just kind of like hug everyone and be kind. Like that's, you know, like it's just kind of a, a surface level thing, version of Christianity that's not tapping into this authentic desire we have as men and women, to be courageous and bold for something of value, something that is true and good and beautiful. That is what we all long for. And when we tap into that, when we experience it, it grabs hold of us. But there's no halfway alternative to that. There isn't. Nothing else will satisfy. And that's why these other self-help things or gurus online that are really tapping into this desire for people to better themselves or challenge themselves or do these really hard things, why they explode in popularity? Because we all desire something like that. We all want it. But it's rooted in what God offers us. We just sometimes forget that. And so this is a good reminder, at least for me and maybe for you as well, that the way of Christianity is hard and praise the Lord that it is because it's worth it. And it should be something that takes daily effort, daily work, daily virtue, because we're not just doing something that's you know, uh, an easy everyday type of thing. We are doing something life altering, world transforming by following Jesus. And our lives should look different. We should look completely different than the world when we do that well. That's at least what resonates with me. I'd love to hear what resonates with you or any questions that you have about this passage. Matt.
kind of mentioned it, um, like obviously proclaiming the gospel, but like I do see some instances where it's like people like let's say they're in a country where you're being persecuted and mm -hmm. put to death for being Catholic or Christian. Like, is there like some prudence of like not revealing to anyone just like that you're Catholic, like? Or is he just saying, like, just straight up, they ask? Then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in those situations, it's prudential judgment, right? So it's, we can't fall into the trap of, like, I'm just not going to share it. Like, even if I'm asked, I'm going to lie, you know, because that's not being truthful. But there's also the desire to, like, okay, how do I protect myself and my family from harm to be able to do the greatest amount of possible good that I can? There's this passage in one of Paul's letters where he's, he's in jail and he's talking about the fact that like, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to die. Like I, I would rather die, but praise God that I'm still able to be here to do the work that God has called me to do. And so that's kind of the balance is like, we always have to be at that moment where we're, we're faithful enough and ready to meet the Lord, but also being good stewards of what he's given us, not being irresponsible with the gift of life and not going out on like a suicide mission to be reckless. But to always be discerning, like, what is going to be the most effective means of helping people to know the Lord? And if I just go out there on my own, unprotected, and I'm gunned down or I'm martyred, is it really going to make a difference? Or is that going to make, you know, Christianity seem like this powerless laughingstock to these people? You know, so, try, you know, it's difficult to put myself mentally in that kind of position of someone on the other side of the planet who's facing that kind of threat. But I think it's, it's you know, when I think about Jesus on the cross— um, is he on the offense or he, is he on the defense? He's on the offense. He looks like he's on the defense. He looks like he's there victimized by what's being done to him, but that's exactly what he planned to do. He's crushing death and Satan there on the cross. He's on the offense. And so even if we are risking death, persecution, martyrdom, or social death, as we might, you know, more likely experience here in the Western world, you know, being canceled or something like that, even if that's what's on the table, and that's what we're risking. We are still on the offense. And if it comes to, to martyrdom, like I, I read somewhere, what does a martyr say to his murderer? Thanks for the ticket to heaven. You know, they're ready. They understand that this life, this life is not all there is to this life. You know, there's something else, there's something more. So yes, we need to discern, we need to have prudential judgment, use our conscience to determine what is the most effective way to proclaim the gospel. But this is obviously a public proclamation in a culture and a time that was very antithetical to Christianity and had murderous intent to those who were Christian. So if it means the Holy Spirit is inspiring you to share and you feel in your good conscience and prudential judgment that this is what you're feeling called to do and it will reach the most souls possible in an authentic and you know, capturing type of way, captivating way, then do it, no matter the risk. You know, that, that's kind of what this is challenging us. But you have to weigh all of those things properly. Yeah? This is what I struggle with all the time. Yes. Catholics don't put the white shirt and black tie on and go on a mission and knock on doors. Mm -hmm. okay? They don't put the suits on and have a cart, you know, and yep. pass out literature. What is our individual evangelization responsibility? Yeah. So you, you, have, you have the suit on right now. <laughs> right here, where you are, where God placed you. We've all got the missionary outfit on. That's our primary number one role. 
We don't have to go across the world, you know, and do this because God has already placed us exactly where he wants us. And if it becomes clear that he's calling us somewhere new, we follow that missionary impulse. And whether it's moving a town over, taking a new job, or moving across the, the world to do something bold like Mother Teresa, all of those things have a missionary impulse. They have a missionary requirement. By virtue of being baptized, we have a missionary mandate that our job is to make disciples. And so we are always in the outfit, on mission, knocking on doors, but it might be we're knocking on the door of the heart of our spouse or our children in our family conversations in the home every day. Or we're knocking on the hearts of the people who work in the cubicle next to us. You know, that's our mission. You know, so, and I have a deep love and respect for people in those denominations who have the ability to go do that, especially those where it's built into the culture of their community, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, both of which I've belonged to at different times in my life. And so I love that impulse, but we, we are meant to have that same baptismal mission, but we don't need to go across the world to do it. We just need to open our eyes to the opportunities, the doors that are all around us. You know, in this room, there are 30 some doors in your neighborhood, you know, in your workplace, start knocking. That's, that's the call. That's our basic responsibility of evangelization. Where has God placed you? Who has God placed around you? Where do you have relationships already where you've earned the right to be heard, earned some trust? Those people know that you care for them and love them. Those are the people who are going to be most inclined to listen to you. You know, Joe Schmo, who shows up at my door, who I've never seen before. You know, who are you? You know, that's why what I really like the last time a couple Mormon missionaries came to our, our house they, uh, they gave us our, their business card. They didn't really say anything about their faith. They're like, hey, if you ever need like a couch moved or something, or you just want to like have coffee, here's our card. And I was like, I could think of a lot of ways I could use manual labor. Like I was like immediately like, you guys have opened up a door that I don't know if you realized. I will take full advantage of this. But, you know, but that's how you build the relationship. You show up to serve. You show up to build, you know, that, that community and that relationship. And then out of that trust, out of that relationship comes those conversations. And they hit deeper, and you're able to go further because you've already established that rapport. You're not just someone on the sidewalk passing by yelling through a microphone. You know, that, that, I, I can't think of a single time in human history I've heard a story where that's been effective for anyone because you don't know that person. They don't know you. They're yelling out of context into your life in that moment. And, may, and, and I do fully believe the Holy Spirit could use that, but I don't think it's the most effective means by far. You know, the most effective is, where are you now? Who is already in your life that you can build a relationship with? Who will already listen to what you have to say? Craig. 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in your mind. I didn't think God or God would or anybody could destroy a soul. That's a great point. This is oftenly, often misattributed to God, to Jesus speaking about the devil. That the devil has the capability of, you know, destroying your soul and your body. And that's not true. The devil cannot do that. The devil's a created being. Only God, who created everything, has the power to destroy it. Destroy the soul? Yeah, he created it. He could. Now, whether or not he didn't, so we don't believe, there's a doctrine in, let me get this denomination right, in Seventh-day Adventism of total destruction, that when your soul goes into eternal punishment, you're actually like completely obliterated. You actually don't go into hell. You are just completely destroyed. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if that's scarier than hell, but like, you know, that's, that's just a teaching of, the, of their church. 
And I think part of it is attributed to this passage. But what it's speaking to here is like, we don't need to fear like anything or anyone on earth. We don't need to fear any other being that God has created. We don't need to fear the devil or his demons. The only being that we really need to fear is God himself. And it's not meant to be this um, fear cowering from judgment, like God is bad or evil or this big monster. It's speaking to that gift of the Holy Spirit called the fear of the Lord or wonder and awe. You know, you can read about this where the gifts of the Spirit are listed, I think, in Isaiah 11 or somewhere in there. But the seven gifts of the Spirit, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, counsel, piety, fortitude, fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord is always, it's, it's, it, it's like a hyphenated word in Hebrew. It just means like fear of the Lord. Like it's not like they're not piecing things together like you are to be afraid of God. No, it's the sense of wonder before the massive and vast power of God. So it's that feeling you get when you look up at the night sky and there's no light pollution. You can actually see the Milky Way and you see the vastness of the universe and you're just taken aback. Or when you're standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, you see the beauty of it. and You're like, what made this? Who made this? That's the sense that the person that made, the being that made all of this, holds it all in his hands. Holds it all in his hands. And that is the person that we should really be attentive to. It doesn't matter what the devil says. Yeah, it does say in Scripture that the devil is seeking, prowling like a roaring lion, seeking to destroy. But he can't. He can't kill the soul. He can torture the soul forever in hell. But I think the person we need to fear more than the devil is ourselves. Because God gives us free will, and we have the capability. We have the capability of saying no to God, and God will respect that decision. So we have a greater power to destroy ourselves than the devil does. It's when we allow ourselves to slip, when we allow ourselves to distrust God, to doubt that God will respect our decisions and allow us to go down that path. That's really the, the thing we need to be attentive to. But it's only God who has that power. We don't need to turn this into a passage where we need to fear like the, the evil, spooky boogeyman of the devil. The devil's already been defeated. You know, you're ever feeling oppression or the presence of the devil or evil, just say, I rebuke you and cast you out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Poof, gone. Like, weak, wimpy, the devil sucks, he's stupid, he has no real power. He doesn't. God is the one with the power. Yes? So in that passage, is that, is that what it means by fear the, fear, fear the one that is it God? Is it? Yeah, it's God. And he himself is given the ability to judge. Jesus, it says in the catechism, he wins that ability by what he did for us on the cross. He earned the right to judge our souls by what he did for us on the cross. And so Jesus ultimately, who is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he has that ability to proclaim or pronounce judgment upon us. So because of that, he can allow us to stay in our sin, and that effectively destroys us, separates us from God. Or the grace that he's already won for us can be applied to us if we respond. Probably because it's not a direct title of God, and only the direct names are titles of God. So because he's speaking more in like a third person, or like, you know, not specifically, that's probably why. But that's a great question. Yeah. Usually it would be if he used a direct title for God. Yeah. Other questions? Things that stood out? Things that you want to say? Craig? Thirty-two. I'm thinking about Peter when I read this. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly Father. 
But whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. So I thought, talk about like the Southwest Airlines ad, want to get away. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a it's a, the stakes of what Peter did. Had he not restored himself in right relationship with Jesus, Peter and Judas essentially did the same thing. They both betrayed Jesus. You know, and we we are all in that boat at some point in our lives. We can all turn our back on on the Lord. It's whether or not we decide to be Judas or we decide to be Peter. Do we run away and stay rooted in our sin and allow it to destroy us? Or do we come back and humbly admit our sin and receive the mercy of God, receive his forgiveness? That's what Peter did. But they essentially were the same person. That's why Jesus, he's not specific, you know, when he says, the one who dips the bread into this dish with me is the one who will betray me. They're all dipping the bread in the dish. And then right after that, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Before the cock crows. I fully believe that Peter thought in that moment, that night, that Jesus was talking about him. He had no clue what Judas was doing. He thought that he was the betrayer. That's why he's so devastated. That's why so many of the apostles are so devastated they can't even see the ramifications of their decisions to abandon Jesus. Why they're not at the foot of the cross. Everyone except for John. Because it's too horrible for each one of them to think like he was talking about me. Because we all have that in us, right? We all have that in us. I was talking to my spiritual director this past weekend about just the reality of like, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but like, like we are all one wrong public decision away from destroying our entire life. Every day, you are one wrong public decision away from, from losing everything. Like I'm married, I have kids, I'm in a public position in ministry. The, the ability, the, the position I'm in to potentially cause scandal if I were to do something completely wrong, twisted, or sinful. Like one wrong choice, and it is all gone. How humbling that is to recognize that the grace of God every single day is sustaining me to not do those things. Because we're all capable. I'm capable. We're all capable of doing sinful, twisted, destructive things. We all are just that much. Like one decision. One decision away every day. Think about how many days you've lived, and you have not done that. That's how many days God's grace has been saving you from the destructive nature of your soul every single day because we all have this inclination towards sin. Isn't that incredible? That God has literally been preventing you and I from wrecking like our entire life every day since the moment we were born. Like that's nuts. That's why I really think it's important, this verse here. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I think the reason why Many people fall into this destructive path is because they don't see their own worth. They don't see their own value. They don't see God at work in them. How God looks at each one of us and he says, look at the grace that I've been giving you. Look at how I'm sustaining you. Look at how much I love you. How much worth, dignity, and value you have as my son, my daughter, my child. Do you not see how my love is sustaining you each and every day? And then he says, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Heavenly Father. As if not seeing our own worth makes us unable to acknowledge God. When we cannot see our own worth, when we cannot see the fact that God is at work in us, that he sees us as that valuable, that he wants to preserve us, he wants to pour his grace into us, he wants to save us from the destruction of sin every day. If we can't see that, then in some way we're not acknowledging the power and the love of God. We are denying him in some way. When we look in the mirror and we deny his creation and we say, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not qualified enough. 
I'm too concerned about what other people think of me. If anyone would find out about these things that I've done, oh, then it'll all be over. You know, I think about these things that like celebrities have done, you know, and the things that get people canceled. And I'm like, we've all done stuff like that. Just nobody knows about it. Like, you know, like they just, somebody found out and they got canceled. And I was like, if everyone, at, the, at the final judgment, everybody's getting canceled, everybody. Like all your sins will be laid bare. Everyone will know, we'll just be like, well, it was all a big old dumpster fire. And now we all know, and we know how much we've needed Jesus this whole time. So let's celebrate for those of us who are faithfully entering heaven because there's no possible way that we could have done this on our own. Like that's the, re- that's the small difference. It's just people know about those. But if everyone or to have the dear diary window into all of the sins and mistakes of your entire life, we've all got a laundry list of qualifications and a resume for being canceled, like every single one of us. Like, praise God for his grace preserving that from happening, right? Praise God for the ways that he sustained us. He's at work in your life every single day, preventing those things from destroying you. What a gift. John? I was just going to say about the general judgment. Yes. I'm, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's only unconfessed sins that you that are going to be laid at this general judgment. No, everything. Everything that you've ever done. Why would you, you've, you've been forgiven of them. Yes. And why, why would it be brought up again? Like, because the way our sin has affected the world has not yet been redeemed. Our soul has been forgiven, but the temporal punishment according to that sin has not yet been paid because that's purgatory. And so in order to restore everything, every soul, everything on earth, and make it elevate it to what it was supposed to be, everything needs to be laid bare. Everything needs, needs to be made known. And it's not just the sins, it's every good work as well. And every effect of God's grace. We'll see how everything has affected the created order and the world. And it's not going to be seen as like, ooh, like, you know, Matt's not going to go up there and be like, all right, let's see what Matt did. Oh, you know, it's going to be the celebration of God's mercy. A recognition of like, wow, look how destructive sin was. But look how God's grace and the good works of those who are faithful is all the more redeeming it. But everything will be laid bare and made known. Yeah, yes? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it, it glorifies God in the sense, like, if you look at, like, Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. where she'll be able to say, like, look how good God was to me. Mm-hmm. And in the case of, like, a damn soul. Everybody else will be able to say, look how good God was mm-hmm. this individual, and yet they still rejected him. Yeah. And they'll see that there's nothing lacking on God's part. It was, it was a pure human yeah. fault. For even saying, look how good God was to respect their decision and yeah. send them to hell. Yeah. Because that's what T.S. Eliot says, God, hell is the terrible compliment God pays to our freedom. He says, I love you enough to let you be free and make your decision. That's how much I love you. And so even at the final judgment, even though there'll be this kind of collective sense of like, you know, mourning and the destruction of sin, like there's also this celebration of like, God is just and good. He's completely just and completely good. You know, and this is how justice has to look, but it never came without his mercy. His mercy was extended to every single person. That's why if you ever see in scripture, there's, a, there's reference to the unforgivable sin. It's often characterized as the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The theology of the church explains that as the only unforgivable sin is the sin you do not ask forgiveness for. Because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the lack of belief in the ability of God to forgive you. And so his mercy is endless. Literally anything you've ever done, anything that you could do, everything that's in that, on that resume of potentially being canceled in your life that you've ever done, will do, are doing right now, God's mercy extends to that.
And yes, everyone will know it all in the end, but it will be in order to see how God is glorifying and redeeming it. My spiritual director also said to me, we were talking about wounds. And he said, a wound can only be two things, infected or glorified. But it will never be healed in the sense that it will go away. So if you have a wound from sin, think about Jesus. When he raises from the dead, what does he still have? His wounds. They don't disappear, but they're not infected. They're not festering. He's not rooted in any kind of temporal punishment or the the consequences of sin that he took upon himself. They're glorified. The same thing is true for you and me. Like if we have this idea of the Christian life that if I'm a good Christian, I'm going to be able to kind of reverse all of the things that sin has done in my life and get back somehow by my own effort to who I was originally created to be. That's not going to happen. It's not. What's going to happen is we're going to be able to see our sin as the the ways in which that we know that we need a savior. And if we can dive deep into those wounds and let God disinfect them by his grace and his mercy, they will become signs in us of his glory. And so this, I'm a firm believer, like if people are struggling with the sin, like we need to speak them out loud to people that we trust who can hold us accountable because only then can the wounds be dug out, disinfected and begin to glorify God because we're showing other people, look at what God has saved me from. Look at what I'm struggling with, and yet God's grace is bigger. But if we hide from our sins and our wounds, they'll fester. Even if we think we've overcome them, even if they're in the past, they'll still fester. Because we're not allowing God to be glorified through them. Other questions, thoughts? John? Um, on, that, uh, on that point of like, our uh, the Protestant street preacher. And yes, that. yeah. I mean, yes, I, for myself, I never had, I, I do admire them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I I laugh when Protestants go to like Catholic countries and try to evangelize there, which is insane, mm-hmm. because that just shows you sometimes that they, like, they really don't see Catholics as Christians on that matter. Sure. But there is somewhere in Luke where it just says if they're not against, like there was a preacher, somebody's grabbing out, not, not a preacher. Somebody exercising trying power. to drive out a demon, yeah. And Jesus is like, not against you, and he's with you. That's how I always see mm-hmm. that. And lesser the Orthodox, but the Orthodox don't don't do this yeah. anymore. I have it in that sense, but um, yeah, and, and I, I do think that the church needs this like revival of, of kind of the um, with you know the, the sending people out. To, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's happening in Africa and China mm-hmm. a lot. And most of the greatest saints who were preachers throughout history preached these very bold, courageous, almost fire and brimstone type sermons that captured people's attention, helped them see the reality and ramifications of sin, and helped them realize how sin has affected them, and they were able to run to the redemption of Jesus. Because, like Father John Ricardo always says, like you can't tell someone the good news unless you tell them how bad the bad news is. No one will understand the depth and the beauty of the good news unless you really reveal to them how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is total destruction of body and soul, total separation from God, complete lack of love, truth, goodness, beauty, and belonging for all eternity. Like to even think about what that is like for a moment. Total darkness, total separation. No love, no connection whatsoever. 
Like it's horrifying to even like meditate on that. And there's, if you've ever done the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, you meditate on hell. Like it's part of the process. It's to help you recognize, like look at how bad the bad news is. Because only then can you understand the gift of what Jesus did for you. Only then can it really sink in. But I think if we have this mentality like, oh, I'm a nice person, I'm a good person, I don't murder anybody. If I do something wrong, I just go to confession and I can keep kind of living this like complacent life. And we think that's like what Christianity is all about. And it's, it's not, you know, that's like me saying like, I'm a good husband, you know, like I don't cheat on my wife, you know, uh, you know, but you know, I'm, I'm not really going to like talk to her or be that nice to her. And when I do, I guess, or when I'm not, I just say I'm sorry and then it'll fix things, you know, like, no, that's not a good husband. You know, like I have to be radically making a bold and courageous effort to love her sacrificially every single day. To lay down my life for her. That's what my vows said. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, as long as I shall live. That's a covenant. It's a window into what our relationship with God and what heaven is supposed to be like. That's the level of sacrificial commitment and work that is required of us in the Christian life. Or else we're doing something wrong. Any final thoughts, questions? Who's at that final thought? Jerry Springer? Was that him? It's like my final thoughts. No? That was a rant, sorry. Talking about, you know, fire and brimstone and the love of God, and I bring up Jerry Springer. Not the... Yes, Alan? I, for myself personally, the problem I run into is, and, and you're, you're throwing it right out there tonight, there are times I don't say something, you know, when I should. Mm. Because it's easier not sure. to say something. And yeah. when you're praying later on or, or thinking about, you know, looking over your day, that's when it pops up to me like, oh, mm. I, I took the easy road there. Yeah. I, I could have, you know, in that conversation with a friend, but I just don't want to, you know, I mean, it was just easier not to say something. But, you mm. know, but that's how I, in my own personal life, how I can improve. It's like, there's those times where you, yeah, and because again, you're scared, but it, it's saying right here that no, I got you. you know, yeah. it, it will work out. You know, where the worst thing you think could happen, it, it's not that bad. Yeah. And, and essentially, we have to ask ourselves like, what's worse, a little social discomfort or even breaking a relationship or hell? You know, for me or for this person, you know, like, and, and odds are that's not really going to be what's on the scales at that particular moment. But like, it paints the picture very clear, like this is always worth it. And I think it, it invites also, you know, kind of a humble reflection on the fact that like, you are not the only soldier in God's army. So like, God can work through others. So if you've had the, we've all had those missed opportunities that we hang on to, like, oh, I totally should have said that. Or, I totally should have like invited that person or, or spoke truth, you know, into this person. And, you know, I, I was at Barnes and Noble a while back and there was a, a group of girls near me. Uh, I was in the cafe and they're having a very loud conversation about how one of them just found out they were pregnant. And it was clear that it wasn't like the best news, but she was still like discerning what to do. And I was in the middle of something and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to do something right now. What do I need to do? And so I'm like sitting and praying about this. And then I think I got like a phone call or a text from my wife that I had to like get home and, and you know, be with, do something for the kids or something. So I was like, shoot. So I like left. And then immediately I was like, you know what I should have done? I should have ran and found what to expect when you're expecting from the bookstore. And I should have bought a card. And I should have wrote her a little note. Like I'm here to encourage you and just dropped it off and be like, I think you need this and then left. And so, but the great thing was when we reflect back on those things, 
And we have uh, like the practice of the Ignatian examine, which is where you, you start with gratitude and you think back over your day and you think about where did I notice God's grace today and where could I improve? Now I have an arsenal in my tool belt the next time that happens that I know immediately what to do. And so not only are those opportunities not total failures because God can work through others, but there are ways in which I am being shaped in better virtue and attention to how can I discern the will of the Holy Spirit in that moment. So nothing is lost or a failure in that sense. Everything is kind of priming and prompting us to do better next time. Yeah. Do you regret not being an update on that, whether like she went through pregnancy or not? I think that, I mean, yeah, I think if I had known in the moment that that would have been a good thing to do, I, should, I would, you know, absolutely would have done it. I think the Holy Spirit is working in that somehow. You know, that if it wasn't me, it was somebody else, you know. So, um, but yeah, now I know immediately if I hear that kind of awkward, way too loud for Barnes & Noble Cafe conversation. <laughs> that was like, it was obvious to me and everyone around, like what was happening. And it was happened so fast too. I was like there to think for like two minutes and then I got this text. So like, who knows if I even would have ended up having the time to do this. But like, it felt like forever, you know, like in that moment, it was like, this was 80 years that I was waiting for this decision to be made. It was like so excruciating, like listening and I'm like, trying not to eavesdrop, but I was like listening to every tone, like, is she okay? Is she going to keep this baby? You know, it was like so nerve wracking. Um, but now I know, now I know in that moment, like, oh, this, this would have been like the best thing to say. And so when the next time that happens, and I'm sure it will happen again, um, you know, that's, it's something that I know immediately that I can do. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I remembered being the dingus that I am that I totally forgot. I always have Obria Clinic cards in my jacket pocket. And I literally could have been like, here you go and left. And I forgot, you know, it's like, why carry with these, these with you if you have no recollection of the fact they're on you whatsoever. So who knows? I think that was very much like I had very much gratitude for God after that because I felt that was like, this is like, this was like a boot camp training session for me. Like I was like so aware of how the Holy Spirit was shaping me for next time, you know, when something like that happens again. But that is our time, so let us pray. We can talk after. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this evening and for the power of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage in our faith. Whatever that looks like, whatever situations you put before us, Lord, this week, that, that we would not be timid, that we would not shy away from opportunities to share your love, because... Um, the risk is so much less than the potential reward. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to the ways you are calling us to be missionaries to those in our lives, in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, that you would empower us to share the good news and recognize that people will not understand how good the good news is until they understand how bad the bad news is. So help us to know that for our own lives, that your grace is preserving us every single day because we're only one wrong public decision away from losing it all that you are always at work in us, loving us, and help us to share that gift and good news with as many people that will hear. Thank you, Jesus, for your endless mercy and love, how you are always on the offensive for us, so help us to always be on the offensive for others, no matter what persecution it leads us to, because you will carry us through it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. God bless you.